The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 31 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. So the Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. So we're going to have Dr. Rebecca Wynn on for the second and third segments of the show tonight to talk about GDPR. That's the new regulation that has everyone in the business scrambling lately, given the upcoming deadline of May 25th for this new complex data security and privacy regulation. So it seems that her appearance on the show is, is timely, and I thought it was a good idea to bring her back on. Dr. Rebecca Wynn brings nearly 20 years of experience to the table in the information security, assurance, and technology spaces. She is well known for being a gifted polymath, which means she's, she has subject matter expertise in several areas. But specifically, she really has a deep understanding of current cybersecurity challenges and data privacy issues. We've had Dr. Wynn on the show before, and we had a great response from her appearance because you learn something every time you hear her speak. You walk away with something you didn't know before you started listening to her, and that's really the goal of the show. I know that your time is valuable, and when you take the time to listen to the show, I want you to walk away with some food for thought and provide you a medium of continuous learning and, and information and, and security awareness, and that's really the goal, right? So Dr. Wynn's a rock star in the data privacy space. That's why that's why we're going to have her speak on GDPR tonight, and you know this is a really cool fact about her. Dr. Wynn was named the 2017 Cybersecurity Professional of the Year, sponsored by the Cybersecurity Excellence Awards. She also won the SC Magazine's Chief Privacy Officer of the Year Award in 2017 as well. So Dr. Wynn is a Global Privacy and Security by Design International Council member, and she has dozens of published writings on cybersecurity that you could read, and, and, and she's got a pretty huge following on social media as well. It's growing every day. I see it growing very fast. Um, because, really, you know, people really like to read what she publishes, and, and thousands of women look up to her as a role model, not only in the cybersecurity space, but just as a business executive in general. And that's another reason why I really love to have her on the show. So stay tuned. We have a great show for you tonight. Dr. Rebecca Wynn on the second and third segments of the show. What are the greatest risks to any organization that depends on technology to promote and facilitate their business is the insider threat. That was the theme of last week's show. People really loved it. I think we had a great time. And when people, you know, when I was looking at social media and all the social media platforms that we use, it was, it was the most shared episode 
on social media in our, our TF7 radio history. We had both the CEO and CTO of Securonics on the show, Sachin Nayar and Tanuj Jalati. And uh, I think they did a great job as a team to uh, break down how companies are able to use massive amounts of data to, to combat the insider threat. So we spoke about cybersecurity on the endpoint a little bit. We dove deep into user behavior analytics, and we even touched upon the importance and viability of sentiment analysis in creating insider threat programs. So I also went over how organizations are defining the insider threat on the first segment of last week's show, which was you know, pretty cool. I think I got a lot of feedback on that, uh, including some uh, constructive criticism on, on my recommendation that the insider threat definition not include unintentional acts committed by employees who cause harm to your critical systems or data. But so, so look, folks, I mean, I knew that was coming, right? I knew that was coming, and I think this is, is, this is a good dialogue. I know that a lot of people feel strongly about including unintentional acts being included in the definition of insider threat, and that's why I kind of threw it out there for our conversation. And I certainly don't think there's a consensus right now on how to define this threat actor. I don't think there's any sort of general consensus in the industry that I could see. I think everybody has a, a different opinion, just like, just like I do. But I know there are some very competent professionals out there who think that if you don't include the unintentional acts in your definition of an insider threat and thereby monitor these instances in your program, you're going to lose some optics on a lot of risky behavior out there uh, that w with further investigation could be determined as malicious. So bad guys, upon getting discovered or being questioned by security personnel about a transaction that they have at work, could claim ignorance or claim they even made a mistake and use that as an alibi to cover up malicious behavior and malicious acts that your team was alerted to as a result of your insider threat alerts and your operational process. So I'm an open-minded guy. I, I try to not be stubborn in my thinking, but but even so, I, I got to say, I, I remain unswayed in my opinion in this instance to exclude these types of risk from your insider threat definition and by proxy your program model. It's just, it's just too broad for me. It's, it's, it's not focused. It's, I think it's very unfocused, in fact. And it adds a, a complexity to your programmatic charter that's unwarranted and doesn't allow organizations to mitigate threats based on proper and accurate root cause analysis. So, I love, but I love the conversation. Uh, I don't pretend to have all the answers, and it's, it's the promotion of the diversity of thought that finds the best solution sets to some of the world's biggest problems, folks. So I don't pretend to have all the answers, and it's good to bring awareness to the masses and keep the dialogue lively and robust. So that's how we're going to solve some of the biggest problems here in cybersecurity, and we have some of the most qualified cybersecurity professionals in the world on this show to help us do just that. So if you missed last week's show on the insider threat, have no fear. Just, just find your favorite playback medium, search for Task Force 7 Radio, look up your latest episode there. It's episode number 30, named How Do Organizations Mitigate the Insider Threat? And Sachin Nayar and Tanuj Galati appear together on the second and third segments of the show. Great show, people. I really, I really enjoyed the guest. It's a, it's, it's a nice one to listen to during your commute. Check it out. So still the most common question I get about TF7 Radio is where can I listen to the show? Uh, you can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet radio talk producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So... All in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. We're everywhere. You can't miss us, folks. Just Google Task Force 7 Radio and you get all your options. Uh, every, the whole, you get on like three pages of options, I think, in fact, at this point. So check us out. TF7 radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And please 
don't forget to subscribe. It's very important. Thanks so much for doing that. So if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. It's a lot for one guy to keep up with. It's only me here on the social media accounts right now, but I'm doing my best. And, and most of all, it's a great way to keep and in, in, interact with the audience on topics like the insider threat that we were just talking about before that are discussed on these TF7 episodes. For, for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. So some quick news and analysis for me before we get into uh, GDPR with Dr. Wynn. So according to Fortune magazine, and I think just about every other news medium in the world, Twitter warned its users on Thursday last week to change their passwords after it discovered that it had mistakenly stored them internally prior to fortifying them through a security technique, leaving the passwords vulnerable to hackers. And that's what Fortune said. So that's pretty much layman's terms for saying that at some point, the user's passwords were temporarily stored in the clear text and they weren't encrypted or hashed or, or, uh, or protected in any way. So Twitter's CTO correctly opined on his blog that users should consider changing their passwords on other services if the passwords they use there were the same as Twitter, as, as, on, as on Twitter, which is it's always a good practice. We've mentioned that before. Good advice, right? So I, as I mentioned before, people are moving to password managers too to help them maintain unique passwords over dozens of different applications because people just can't keep up with the number of passwords they have these days. It's just crazy out there, right? So Twitter went on to disclose the password flaw in a regulatory filing on Thursday, indicating that the bug was serious enough to warrant more formal disclosure than a corporate blog post. So the article said that you know, Twitter has about 336 million users, according to its latest letter to shareholders, which, which quantifies the disclosure. So Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey followed the CTO's post by tweeting that the company has no indication of breach or misuse, and he added that the company warned users because it's important for us to be open about this internal defect, which is, you know, it's pretty cool, right? They're just keeping people informed of what's going on, which is fine in case something really does happen in the, in the future. So the software bug said to be responsible for the problem appears to be related to how the company secures users' passwords through a security technique called hashing. And through the hashing technique, Twitter converts passwords into random assortments of numbers so that when users log in, Twitter can validate passwords without actually having to read them. So because of the software bug, user passwords were written into an unspecified internal log before they could be converted into a series of numbers. So as a result, user passwords were left vulnerable, although Twitter said no one appears to have improperly accessed the log. So look, people, a little analysis here. I think you know, people were just slamming Twitter on this, and, and, and I don't know why. I, I really don't know why. I mean, remember, there's no evidence that anyone improperly accessed this information in the clear or that it was compromised by any third parties. I mean, Twitter's CTO, his name is Parag Argroel. I guess I'm going to try to pronounce that right. Excuse me if I, I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm terrible with these last names. But he initially said via a tweet that the company didn't have to share the information to the public, but chose to because it's the right thing to do. And then he backtracked on a statement and said that he felt strongly that we, you know, we should, we should uh, disclose this. And that was my mistake to say that we didn't have to. I mean, come on, man. It just goes to show you, it seems that in this environment, no matter what you do, someone's always going to jump on you. Someone's always going to have a problem with what you say because I really don't get what's wrong with telling people that they had an issue. And they'd say, hey, look, you know, we are not required by law to release this information to the public, but we are, just in case we find out later that the data was left vulnerable, you know, and, and well, the data that was left vulnerable, I should say, was compromised 
you know, we want to get it out there ahead of time so, you know, get it to our users so they can protect themselves. You know, to my knowledge, they have no evidence of a breach that would trigger a notification uh, through any kind of regulatory laws. And so what's wrong with that saying, hey, look, you know, don't get nervous because we're just telling you this, but we're, we weren't breached. But we're just at an abundance of caution. We're telling you our passwords were temporarily stored in a log without being hashed or, or masked or encrypted or anything else. So what's wrong with that? I don't get it. I don't, I don't know why people jumped on the guy and, you know, he kind of reversed his, his, his thought process there. And, but, you know, look, by the way, there, this is no new flaw that's being discovered here for those people that really aren't in the cybersecurity business that are listening to the show. The chance of passwords getting logged in plain text logs, leaving them visible to authorized staff, is a well-known flaw in how passwords are handled. So, yes, they, and they, this, this has led to some pretty significant breaches in the past, but so far that doesn't be seen the issue here. It doesn't seem to be what happened here. So I see that you know, Twitter, Twitter notified regulators, and, uh, but I think that that's being reported the wrong way too. I mean, companies notify regulators and changes in their security posture all the time. They, they tell them all that they have these discussions all the time with regulators, if you're not familiar with how, how it works, right? So it doesn't mean that situation triggered any type of mandatory notification requirement that I could at least find. I couldn't find anything, uh, you know, and I searched pretty vigorously. Maybe I'm missing something. If I am, you know, please feel free to let me know. But I just didn't see anything that triggered that mandatory notification requirement. So from my point of view, you know, kudos and accolades to Twitter for being transparent and letting everyone know what's going on. Um, you know, I think it's good for them. It seems to me that they did the right thing here and, uh, you know, people shouldn't jump on them for trying to do the right thing at all. And so I, I would like to add, you know, one more thing to their recommendation on changing your password for Twitter and other applications that use the same password. I would also like to, you know, recommend to our listeners here that, you know, and remind them, Twitter uses two-factor authentication. I mean, I would use the two-factor authentication with Twitter whenever possible. I mean, Twitter does offer MFA, so even if someone somehow gets a hold of your username and password, they will be unable to log into your account without having access to your phone where you would be sent a text message containing a code that you need to complete the login process. So just a reminder, if you're using Twitter, use that MFA, change your password, and you should be good to go. All good stuff. So I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes with some words from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the head of information security and data protection for the Matrix Medical Network, Dr. Rebecca Wynn, to talk about GDP. PR after these short messages. Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. 
Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the head of information security and data protection for Matrix Medical, Rebecca Wynn. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. Thank you, George. It's an honor and pleasure to be back on your show again. Well, I'm glad you're here with us. So I want to talk about GDPR on this episode uh, because we've got so much going on with GDPR in the news. And a lot of people are getting a lot of questions about it still. So let's start with the basics. Like, what is GDPR? Who does it apply to? And when does it become applicable? George, that's a great question. I, I do want to take a moment to remind the audience that everything I say here is my own opinions. It's no one who I've worked for before the government, and it's not my current employer, Matrix Medical Network, or anybody here in the future I might work for. And I also want to take a moment to wish everybody a happy International Internal Auditor Awareness Month, as May is the Internal um, Auditor Awareness Month. So. All right. I didn't know that. Yeah, awesome. see? You learned something new with me. <laughs> I learned something day. already. We just got going. <laughs> All right. Well, the um, new European Union, the EU, and general data protection regulation that we'll, I'll refer to as GDPR um, going forward, it states that any organization that collects and holds data on citizens or customers in the EU will have new expectations to protect um, the privacy of those users. It's a very, very strong attempt to set a higher bar for consumer rights and security, which, in my opinion, <laughs> has been way too long waiting and coming. Um, I can't wait till that goes more and more national, especially in the United States. The businesses will now be required to comply with a strict set of rules and by the cutoff date, and that is so rapidly approaching. It's May 25th, 2018, so that's just a couple weeks away. And what the whole purpose was is they were trying to, um, to go ahead and rewrite an outdated EU regulation that formed back in, in 1995. As we know, the, the world has vastly adapted a lot of new technologies in that, and so in data gathering, so it really had to be revamped and updated. The new rules will be consistent across all 28 EU members, plus Iceland, Norway, Liechtenstein, collectively known as European Economic Area, um, and likely the United Kingdom, UK. Um, remember, United Kingdom, I'll t- I probably will talk a little bit more of that later, but that's got the Brexit, the Britain exit, so that's a unique case in itself. But the bar is set to a very high standard, and with businesses having to make significant investments um, to their business to comply. In fact, many businesses have already invested more than a million euros, and I saw numbers up to over 10 million euros, um, just to make them fully compliant with these new regulations. The GDR tries to protect um, data privacy, such as um, the basic identifiable information as your name, your address, ID numbers, but it does go into web data 
as well, which is really great. So your location, your IP address, the cookie data, you know, the cookie law, uh, RFID tags. How about, you know, it covers the health, the genetic data, biometrics, um, racial, ethnic data, your political opinions, and um, sexual orientation. And that's just to name a few. Some like to compare uh, GDPR with Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, I always like that, where GDPR is a big bad wolf coming in to kind of eat you up. Um, but I like to think of more like Goldilocks. You know, the first attempt back in 1995 was, you know, it's a little too little. And this one may be a little bit too big. Um, but in no time at all, I think we'll get one closer that's just right. So, you know, I, every time I talk to somebody, they say, oh, you know, are you guys ready for GDPR? And I'm like, no, no one's, I, I can't get anyone. There's no, there's no one I can find out there that says, oh, yeah, we're ready. Let's do it. You know what I mean? So what happens if you don't comply, you know, by, the, by, the, by this due date, you know, May 25th, 2018? What are the penalties for noncompliance with GDPR? Whew. Well, noncompliance, um, that could be fatal for, for most businesses. Um, so really getting informed on rules is vital, and you're right. I have companies reach out to me who haven't even started, which is they should be very afraid, very, very afraid. That's scary. Right? <laughs> scary. Because yeah, um, any, you know, any data breach um, from an organization um, could immediately incur a fine, get this, up to 23.6 million euros. That's 23.6 million. Man, that is a lot of money. Um, or they could be even 4% of the total worldwide annual turnover, whichever is higher. So it could be way more than that. And, yeah, and that's think, just think stacks and stacks of cash on the table. Like, like, like it's a lot of money, man. That's a lot. Yeah, that's just, it's just so staggering. Such a huge number. So, but Lisa's telling you how serious they're taking this. So really that fine for one breach could cripple most large companies, let alone any smaller companies. And yes, before you ask, George, um, cloud providers, they're not going to be immune to this GDPR enforcement. So what's going to, do you think that, you know, they're not going to drop the hammer right away on all these companies that aren't prepared, right? I think if, if, they, re, if they reach out to a company and the company says, hey, yeah, we, you know, we're not where we need to be, but, you know, everything's in motion. We have a plan and we're executing on it and we hope to be there soon. You think they're going to say, okay, let's, let's, let's just keep talking and we'll talk in the future. Or are they going to start finding people right away? Depends on the company. Um, you know, the companies who are starting today, I think they're going to have a hard um, time trying to prove that they were trying to, to be in compliant um, by the 25th cutoff date. But the people who've been working on it for several years, I think they will have a little bit more of a leniency. Um, but that's really kind of hard to tell us because it's going to have to tell the people who are actually going to go ahead and leverage those fines. And there's going to be some cases that have to be able to set the bar. But just so everybody knows in the audience trying to, to figure out what this really means, you know, let me give you a better picture of what it even means to be noncompliant, right? Because that's where we need to start at. Um, if you have insufficient consent to process an individual's personal data, that would be noncompliant. If you violate the privacy by design concept, that means you're noncompliant. Uh, if you don't have your records in order, uh, if you're not informing the supervising authority and data subject, anytime they talk about data subject, they really mean the individual um, about a breach, you would be noncompliant. And could, if you're not conducting an impact assessment to see where your data is located and, and how it's protected, that would also be noncompliant. Um, um, but, but as you, you, know, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, yeah, there is some debate over whether high fines will even be levied and in what circumstances, but it's, yeah, but again, it's possible that those data regulators will want to send a clear message by taking, make an example of an organization for noncompliance. And uh, apparently the European Data Protection Board, it's called the EDPB, 
will offer or guidance on fines, but that guidance is not yet available. In the first few cases, it's going to be setting the bar and the precedent for everybody else. I just don't want to be that first person who gets the lawsuit against. Right. No, I don't think anybody wants to be made an example of. Um, so GDPR mentions that the data controllers and also data processors. What's the difference between these two definitions? Yeah, the very good question. Um, a controller determines the purpose, conditions, and the means of processing that personal data. The processor processes the personal data on behalf of the controller. So think of it this way. A data controller exercises the overall control over why and how data is processed, and a data processor controls the more technical aspects of an operation such as the data storage, retrieval, erasure, the processor might be a data, a data center or maybe a document um, management organization. And let me give you a couple examples. Um, a bank would be a controller. It collects the data about the customers opening a new account, but sends the information to another organization, the processor, to be stored and cataloged. An investment bank would be a controller, uses a clearinghouse, a processor, to settle the trades. A retailer would be a controller, collects customer email addresses, and contacts a third-party processor to create and send monthly newsletters to customers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes, it makes perfect sense. I, I appreciate the, the clarification on these definitions because the nomenclature they use is really important to really understanding what the law means. Now, what the law means for the C-suite. These, these are the people in charge of executing the strategies to make sure that they're compliant with GDPR, specifically for CISOs and CIOs and CTOs the like. What types of questions do they need to ask themselves to prepare for this? Well, there's a lot of them. So <laughs> I'll, um, I'll try to give you several here as our time allows and um, um, pipe in with any questions that you have because there is a lot. And I, and I think it's just real important that they kind of understand from a broader perspective what this really means to them. Okay. They don't always get it. They really need to have a, a really good, a really great understanding of the personal data that they hold and where it resides. And the organizations need to generate, again, what I talked about earlier, that data protection impact assessment, because they have to be able to report in the document the areas of high risk of their data processing, which needs to include, for, for example, um, even monitoring individuals' behavior. Um, it means that they have to be able to locate the personal data that they're collecting related to the activity, understand, and, and be able to document how it's processed. They need to be able to detail you know, who, what, when, and where um, that processing is taking place, who's accessing it, why they're accessing it. And they have to have that document ready to go if they have a regulatory in inspection or if they are asked just to go ahead and have a person on site look at it or if they have to actually send it in. So one of the key challenges for organizations will be finding where all that is being stored once it's collected and and, you know, for a large organization, it's not going to be that you can just call the IT department and grab this. So be, that's one of the big challenges a lot to do is be able to map out where all those data flows are if, if they're not already doing that. Um, they also need to know access rights to the personal data, who um, accesses it and why they have access to it, right? Because you always want to know what you need to know and, and do you really have a, a reason to be there. So one of the clear requirements of the GTBR is being able to limit who has access to the personal data and to make sure that access is authorized that it reflects the personnel changes that happen with the organization. I, um, I've talked to you before about this. I call it the creeper effect. You know, I move within an organization. I move between departments. And a lot of times, organizations do not take all your rights away 
and then when you're in your new department, give you the rights that are really appropriate for the department. Instead, a lot of people carry their rights through um, out, and what happens is you get more and more and more access to things that really you shouldn't have it, you don't have a need to know. They're also going to have to analyze their policies on data handling. Um, that includes the test data usage, the retention, and the destruction. And it's going to just be really, really important for them to understand who has all that access, why they have it, and then they're going to be able to be able to defend that as well. So just because you're a senior role in an organization doesn't mean that you should have keys to the kingdom and have access to everything underneath the world. And so I'm really happy about that because I, I don't like creepers out there. No right. one else should like them Right, either. Right. No, it's a big problem. Um, the other thing is going to be um, with the challenge on that is not only, like I told you, monitoring who has access, but if there is a breach out there, how are you going to be detected and, and how are you going to investigate that breach? And that's one of the most burdensome requirements of the GDPR that any organization that controls personal data can have. Um, the experience of the breach of the data that they need to be able to be able to, to talk to the local data protection authorities called a DPA in the member states where the people affected by that breach reside. And you've got to do that within 72 hours of identifying or confirming the breach. And you have to be able to tell the individuals that have been breached by themselves. That is a really heavy burden. Because you, um, as a CISO and as a CTO and a CEO, you, you have to not only be able to identify the personal data that was breached, but the nature of the breach and that you'll need to be able to understand who accessed the personal data, what activity they performed, when they performed it. You have to be able to document all that, um, what's your plan of action to get it resolved. And like I said, you have to be able to go tell those DPAs, and then you've got to be able to get a hold of these individuals and be able to let them know that they've been breached. And you have to do that all within a 72-hour window. And, you know, you really don't want to look at that $23.6 million fine because you're not doing that type of right, stuff. Right, right. Um, you also need to look at your systems. How will you minimize the volume of personal data used in non-production system? Remember, we've talked about this before, is people have backups of backups of the backups of the backups of the backups. Um, and then you always have people who just want to have another backup. So it, the GDPR actually requires business to minimize the personal data they retain, particularly when they don't actually need it for the day-to-day -day operations of the organization. So they're going to have to look at that, not only from a business but compliance perspective, um, and the regulation states that they should purge data in a legally compliant manner. Um, always deploying um, encryption, um, data masking, but the new um, pseudonymization technology that's out there as well, which is brought in by GDPR, which is really cool. So it's going to be interesting on that one to see how big data is um, going to be able to handle that because they always want all the data and be able to view all the data and determine the small piece they need. This is really turning it back to, no, you need to tell me what the small pieces you need and what's the reason and then do I have confirmation that she should be able to use it. So big data is really going to be affected, so it's going to be interesting. Um, but you also need to be able to um, look at the databases and you need to be able to look at your data and see about it being transferred outside um, the country, you know, the EU, because the GDPR imposes restrictions on the transfer of personal data outside the European Union to third countries. And when you look at a third country and why they need you to have the data, you need to look even at their adequate um, laws. Are they really adequate to protect that data? And the reason for that is the whole purpose is ensure that the level of protection afforded by the GDPR to individuals in the EU, it's not undermined, um, that it can be protected from wherever they actually travel, wherever that data controls. So the means that organization um, 
needs to put in place. What they need to do is everybody who that touches that data, they're going to have to do an evaluation of them as well and go ahead and get with them and make sure that they're up on GDPR, that they're doing the right things as well, because that can, again, fall back up to you as a, the company that's giving them that, that information. So it's really going to be a lot of monitoring, but there are some tools that are out there that you can start using, um, but you're going to really need to look at stuff in real time to try and pre prevent these data transfers recurring um, even by accident. So I know those are, those are about five areas or so um, high level, but you can see that's pretty daunting and it can't be something that you just start, you know, on the 24th to be prepared on the 25th. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like that can be pretty intimidating, what you just outlined for our audience, unless you have a, a clear strategy and a program and working groups in place to, to you know, start executing on this. You'd be on the world of hurt, it seems, in a few weeks. <laughs> Most definitely. So look, we have to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Rebecca Wynn after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the head of information security and data protection for Matrix Medical Network, Rebecca Wynn. So, Rebecca, we're back. Um, so, if you're a United Kingdom organization with Brexit happening, does GDR still apply? A great question, George. Um, and the answer is yes. Um, the UK government and the information commissioner have confirmed that the UK's decision to leave the EU will not affect the commencement of GDPR. Um, if you are a UK organization and you are handling personal data, you will still need to comply with GDPR. By the time March 31st, 2019, the Brexit, so the British exit deadline comes around, the um, EU um, GDPR will have been in effect for more than 10 months. The 
proposed UK data protection bill, which is what they'll be following. It, it largely replicates the GDPR anyway, um, but it has so far added one extension. Um, upon request, social media companies will need to delete um, you know, person's post from before their 18th birthday um, if they um, go ahead and put that request in. So that's the only change right now that's um, significant. But, you know, also keep in mind that adding the new protection bill, it's, it's not only being adopted by the UK. Um, for example, the Irish government has um, published their eagerly awaited um, data protection bill, 2018. That was on January 30th of this year. Um, the bill incorporates Ireland's national um, implementation measures, which are also required in the GDPR, and creates a new regulatory framework for enforcement of data protection laws in Ireland. So, you know, you see it around um, the world. Other companies are actually starting to adopt these other similar bills. So what about the big tech companies out there? There's a lot of conversation in the news about these big tech companies and Google and, and Twitter and, and Microsoft. I mean, do they have to comply uh, with this as well? Um, even though they would like to think otherwise, some of them. Um, <laughs> big, yeah, big tech companies, like all others, um, they have no um, exemption from GDPR. And you've seen that with Google, Facebook, um, two of the biggest collectors, and like you said, Microsoft, um, of personal information. Um, they've been making changes to their businesses, but things haven't gone without a hitch. I mean, we've seen that real recently with Facebook yep. um, amid the uh, Cambridge Analytica data scandal. That was interesting, very entertaining to watch with popcorn in front of the TV. Um, the organization has altered its position several times. Not shocking to me at all. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, I uh, like to sometimes call him Mr. Flip-Flop. Um, he initially said that Facebook wouldn't apply the same privacy protections across the world. Um, and since then, he reversed his position and announced everyone would get the same, quote-unquote, tools um, wherever they lived. But Facebook has changed the terms and conditions of its users who live outside the U.S. and Europe. Um, Rudders reported that Facebook is changing location on most of its user registrations outside of Europe to the U.S. rather than Ireland. I think that probably has to do with the um, new data protection bill that I, I just told you about a moment ago in Ireland. Um, but that, what that really means is about 1.5 billion people won't fall under the protection of GDPR. You know, let's, let me find a loophole to get out of it. But elsewhere, like Google, has sent notifications to all of its users to update their data and review what's collected about them, which, which is great. The firm also updated its ad settings, and some individuals have received notifications saying they should review their privacy settings, and Google has created a page for businesses it works with to also help them out with that. So that part's a good sign. So what is bundled consent? Is, is it allowed under GDPR? Well, the UK Supervising Authority, the Information Commissioner's Office, which you'll hear me also say ICO guidance, explains that consent requests must be unbundled. And what that means is that consent requests are separate from other terms and conditions. Um, consent should not be a precondition of signing up to a service unless necessary for that service. And that's a great change, in my opinion, because it's, it's like you have to consent first before you even get to see what, what they're actually going to collect the data on. That's how it's usually been run, and now this, it won't be that way, which I think that's really great. And so you'll be able to go ahead and have more linear um, chances to go ahead and what you opt in and what you opt out of. I should say that you should be opt out of, and then you can opt in. One thing that people ask me about, and I think you just mentioned it in, in the, one of your previous answers here, is about you know, Facebook changing the location of its users' registration outside of Europe to the U.S. to sort of avoid or you know, go around the GDPR uh, regulation. And is, is that really true? So if, just because they, they, they have the registrations outside of Europe to the U.S., wouldn't they still be uh, 
don't they still have to comply for GDPR because they do business in the EU or is that not right? No, you're right. They, they do. But again, they're trying to, how can I delay? How can I minimize? And, you know, in some, some companies, how can I go ahead and have other companies um, be the first on the block to go ahead and test those fines of 20, 23.6 million? My personal opinion is, you know, Facebook is probably going to be one of the first one up there is going to find themselves in the, in the courts. And, and we'll go ahead and see how much of these trying to get out with minor loopholes actually does them. Um, yeah, well, that's going to be interesting to see because I, I don't think that I think they're going to be very aggressive in, in terms of enforcing this. That all the companies that it applies to, especially companies that try to circumvent it, um, yeah. I think they would be high on the list. So they talk a lot about active consent. How how long is active consent valid for? And does does it need to be renewed to prevent it from expiring? Well, according to the ICO, um, there is actually no set time limit for consent. Um, how long it lasts depends on the context. Um, and it's always best practice, you know, even before this came along, that you actually look at your um, consents and, and you refresh them as appropriate. Um, several companies are in the process, though, of building out tools and features to make it easier for the customers to, to obtain and, and track the consent. Several, um, I know, websites that I go to, you know, they have a page and they have it very linear and I can turn them on, turn off, which is really wonderful. And it's going to be great as we see that roll through more and more services. And you as an individual should always go ahead and check check every website you go to and, and just remind yourself, you know, what you consented to, what you didn't consent to, and then put that on some sort of system review that you might even want to go ahead and store that in the password safe that you have. Some of them have a description and you can make a little reminder to yourself what you okay to not can, can trade, but it's going to be on you as an individual to go ahead and to monitor that and to alter that as often as needed. So what about these online file storage accounts like Box or, or even Facebook? I mean, are those affected? Um, yeah, um, they are in many cases. By definition, the use of Dropbox, um, Box, Google Drive, and several of these um, file storage um, devices in of themselves don't um, go ahead and are affected or breached by GDPR. Um, and so as we see cloud storage and sharing, they're readily used. But the concern is the data that's actually being stored. And under what security conditions are they being stored? You know, you really need to consider where you provide a corporate sharing account. And if you do, you need to really provide guidance and training to staff on its use and what they can store in it. And, and again, you're going to have to monitor what data is in there so you can go ahead and you can purge it um, adequately. So the danger to a company is that when employees are using these storage mediums um, and if they use them unknown to the organization um, and if they, if they put sets of information in there, it really puts the business at risk. Um, and in noncompliance. Yeah, it really does because, you know, it, I think, you know, in instances like Dropbox and Box and Google Drive, it's, I think those companies know people are storing information on there and they're, they're going to they're gonna look to sort of classify some of this stuff and categorize it and things like that. But there's some other non-traditional, uh, you know, file storage, uh, you know, platforms that don't, have that set up already. People could be uh, storing, you know, sensitive data on all these platforms and these companies would not even know it. They would still be held liable though, right? They'd still be held accountable for GDPR rules uh, under those, that situation, correct? Absolutely. That's why, you know, I, I'm always an advocate of a blocking them at the firewall and, and actively monitoring them through data loss prevention because as soon as you block, you know, Dropbox, Box, Google Drive, then people are searching out there for some other 
um, file sharing. So you really need to be active as a company, block them on the firewall and, you know, block them on the data loss prevention and our tools along those lines. And, you know, as we talked earlier about the CISO, CIO and CTO, you know, we're going to constantly have to deal with the executives screaming because it's, they don't, you know, they like to store stuff up there, but we just can't have them do it, especially when you're looking at possibly $23.6 million in fines. Euros. So, so what about, what about photographs and videos? I mean, you know, say for instance, I mean, all these places, uh, you can't go anywhere in Manhattan now without being on video. I mean, everywhere you go, whether you're in a taxi on the corner, I mean, you know, walk in front of stores, there's this video everywhere. You know, what, what's the deal with that? <laughs> Great question. And one thing you didn't mention too is, you know, what happens if I go to a sporting event and you try to put my name up, you know, my picture up on that jumbotron. Um, so the GDPR does state that IP addresses and IMEI, which is the mobile phone identifiers and possibly photographs can be considered personal data. So photographs where individuals are clearly identifiable or tagged, you know, as you said, within Facebook or where personal data is labeled, um, or can be even searched online, you know, uploading that, that image to Google and then searching to see if there's any other pictures out there and then you can find out who the person is. That may be um, considered personal data and therefore fall under GDPR. Um, the video footage um, can be classed as personal data as well when the individual uh, filmed are identifiable, you know, when they don't blur them. And for this reason, organizations caption the data, they're going to have to be very transparent and very clear on what they're using the footage for and how long it will be kept and who will have access to it. And even with businesses, when you have surveillance cameras, um, and like you said, New York City has surveillance cameras outside Times Square and everywhere else, uh, if you're dealing with employees, subcontractors, they need to, you know, the companies really need to be uh, mindful and watchful about GDPR. The recorded images, um, how long are you going to keep them? What are they going to be used for? Who actually has access to it? How are you going to archive it? Um, are employees very much so aware of what is being filmed and an organizational policy? Um, you really have to make sure all that's in order, and it's going to be very interesting. Um, the other thing is, is from a legal basis, how that's going to be stored, and and if you people, a lot of people were uploading to the cloud all the time, but that can be an issue as well, as cloud servers do hold data from other organizations, and if there is a breach or something along those lines because you didn't put the right security around it, again, that could also go ahead and, and lead you to, to fines and things like that. So. GDPR as a whole is just raising a lot of questions among cyber underwriters about whether they, they can, you know, even be able to ensure this because those penalties are so harsh. So let's continue to break it down further. Is, is anything being worked on from a legislative standpoint on mobile location data? You know, that those who currently use it should be aware of. I mean, everybody uses it, right? I, mean, I think in general, a lot of people do use it. I mean, what should they, be, what should they know about that? Um, yes, it's, it's um, the e-privacy regulation, and um, that replaces the um, previous directive that I, I referred to earlier as the cookie law. Um, that's where they go ahead and they look at all the online identifiers, your devices, your browsers, the cookies, um, identifiers, IP addresses. And while the regulation's not final, its expansion will require companies to stay aware of the implications of adopting it as it takes place. So yes, it is, it is coming, and um, that's what I like, the cookie law. Um, that's what I'm referring to when I speak to there. So it seems to me like it's going to be really hard to prove that an organization is compliant with this, with this law. I mean, there's so many things that go into to place, and I, I don't even know how they would go about executing uh, an audit of such uh, a huge, huge regulation. So what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, how's that going to play out? 
I agree with you. I seriously doubt any organization can be 100% compliant all the time. And that's mostly because key areas of interpretation have yet to be clarified by the regulatory bodies. You know, remember what I said about Little Red Riding Hood, you know, the big bad wolf is GDPR, and that I said I think it's more like Goldilocks. You know, before, you know, the laws were too lax, now they might be too strict, and then we're going to find that, that happy medium. Um, but the best approach for an organization is always to do whatever they can to comply with the areas that are clear. You know, ask advisors, you know, their advice on the areas that they're unsure of. Uh, but be prepared to change your approach and, you know, plan that things are, are going to become more strict in areas and, and maybe a little less strict in other areas. So you got to be able to be agile and, and nimble. Um, and, but as they go ahead and they clarify and you need to be able to go ahead and make sure that you move on those pretty quickly. There's no certification to sign off from on a professional body to show that you are compliant. What you can do is put in place data principles, documentation, processes, and training. Have that impact assessment that I told you about. Um, so you can actually show that you are on the pathway to go ahead into here and you are doing the best to your, your building beyond. Over in Europe, um, they can file the ISO 27001, really that whole 2700 um, series. There's a cybersecurity certification. United States, people might use the NIST cybersecurity framework or several other frameworks um, to go ahead and then show that they are, are trying to do the right thing. And But you've got to make sure that you're using a um, framework that not only has privacy in it, but also technical and operational requirements. So you can try to know what you're going to be able to do under a breach and the notifications that we talked about that I said is mandatory. Because you, you have to think about accidental unlawful destruction. How about if someone alters unauthorized disclosure? How about if someone got access to the personal identifiable information? What are you going to do along those lines? Because the whole aim of GDPR is to move away from checkbox approach to data protection. And, and you've known me long enough, George. You know I hate that stupid checkbox. It's yeah. all about <laughs> being secure, being private, having right. risk metrics in place. Um, and, and keep in mind that, you know, again, as I said, being nimble, the I, ICO or government could induce a GDPR certification, but again, it's not there yet. So be careful of um, any of the unofficial pretenders out there trying to make you, you think that they have one out there and try to get money from you. Really avoid them. Um, but you also pay attention to Article 32 as a company. There are 99 articles, but Article 32 in specifics, it does set out the requirements for effective compliance. Um, it requires the three Ps, um, policy, processes, and procedures. And again, for obtaining, processing, and protecting that data. So go ahead and keep those in mind, and, and you will be on a, a better road. So, so how do you reconcile the right to be forgotten with other requirements? How does that work out? Yeah, the right to be forgotten, which also is the right for erasure, um, it provides you as an individual with the right to require the data be, you know, erased, obliterated. Right. Um, but it's not kind of like a free-for-all because there are some only if grounds in place there. So, you know, you could ask that, um, that your data get erased if uh, where the data is no longer necessary for the purpose it was collected. Um, consent has been withdrawn, so you okayed it and then you didn't okay it. Um, if it's unlawful to process that data, uh, if there's no overriding legitimate grounds for processing um, of the personal data, or um, the data is required to be raised by EU or national law. But, you know, and it's important, you got to keep in mind that just because you ask, there, it's, it's not a free-for-all where you can absolutely get out. There are some exceptions for, for doing that. Um, as well. So, for example, there is a three-part test organizations need to be able to go ahead and go by to go ahead and know that um, 
if your, you know, legitimate interests um, are still in play. Um, they have to be able to identify the um, legitimate interest, show that the processing is necessary to achieve it, and balance it against the individual interests, rights, and freedoms. Um, if the same result can reasonably be achieved in another less intrusive way, then legitimate interest basis um, would not apply. You know, in addition, you need to keep track of like health surveillance records. They can be secluded, um, excuse me, um, not part of this right to be forgotten either. The relevant health and safety regulations, um, it might depend on risk. Stay for how long the records need to be kept. But in general, I mean, it could last for 40 years or in the European Union, you know, it could be 10 years or so in the United States. The ICO states that the right of erasure does not provide an absolute right to be forgotten. Individuals do have a right to have personal data erased and to prevent processing in specific circumstances, but it's not in all circumstances. So keep that in mind that, you know, you can always ask, but there are some um, reasons why the government might choose that that information needs to be, you know, kept and also for legal reasons. So I want to touch on something. <laughs> Obviously, you, you know, um, we're, we're building a, 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 a social professional network in Task Force 7. We're building a platform it's supposed to come out uh, later on this year with our MVP. Uh, we're going to have a web version of it. So can you speak to possible issues with social media? I mean, will, will it be possible after GDPR to import followers of other social media accounts, for example, uh, to Twitter, for, you know, for instance? Well, GDPR does not specifically address the situation, so it's not clear. It's one of those areas I think it's going to be defined as we go along. Um, but it, it's probably going to be for you. It's going, to be de it's going to depend on the nature of the consent and for the various other social um, platforms. Um, so this whole thing about just transferring stuff from LinkedIn to Twitter to Facebook back and forth, you're really going to have to be very careful about each one of those That's consents. Right. And you're going to have to That's start right. lining them up. Um, so my understanding is that Recurring Twitter imports will no longer be permitted by most platforms. And my understanding is that you would need to treat these people in the same manner that you would treat any list of uncontacted persons, that you'll have to reach out to the, the users once over a certain period of time and then, you know, um, see if they want to be, uh, if they would like to join your network. And then, you know, you can't keep bugging them, at, you know, every other day right. about that. That's, that's my understanding. But it's one of those areas that will be defined as we go along. But most platforms are are trying to have that linear opt-in and then trying to define which platforms they can actually go ahead and do that um, mass import to. So that's what my understanding is. All right, great. Well, Rebecca, it was great having you back on the show. I really appreciate you coming back in again. Um, and I'd love to have you back often. Oh, it'd be my pleasure, George. I really enjoy being on the show and I enjoy your audience. So I would love to be back as often as you guys would like me to be here. Thanks so much. Appreciate you. So we've run out of time, folks. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.